Stay hungry, stay foolish. We can all live off the coast of Utopia. There it is, shimmering in all its perfect beauty across the water. Of course, we can never get to Utopia. We can't achieve or create perfection. But that does not mean we should not try. The cynic dismisses the existence of Utopia, preferring the surety of mediocrity and worse. The wise person is optimistic, prepared for the reality they will not get to the Utopian shore but keeping its possibility in their sights. Working this way offers a joyful and more meaningful existence. It is a continual process, and that is its enduring beauty. No pessimist ever discovered the secrets of the stars, or sailed to an uncharted land, or opened a new heaven to the human spirit. As you sail along, maybe it's wise to keep the utopian coast in your sights. We welcome author of multiple books, a man who has worked across all the continents on helping businesses bring beauty into their business and prepare them for the world of today. Welcome, Alan Moore. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on the show, Alan. And let's dive straight into this because that was an excerpt from your beautiful book. And it's right at the end of the book. And I thought it'd be a lovely way to open up today's show and share the depth of thought and beauty that has gone into this book. Because it's a beautifully crafted book as well as the thoughts and the words and the beauty poured into it, the copy is beautiful as well. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. You say, Alan, beauty is not dependent on style, but on truth. And I'd love if you'd share what that means with our audience. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's kind of funny because if people think you're really turning up to talk about beauty, they won't reach for the kind of, well, you know, uh, beauty is only in the eye of the beholder or, you know, it's a stylistic thing. They understand, every single human being understands that beauty is at somehow or another at the basic core of us as people and, and the planet that we, that we live on. And if you show up authentically and people really think that you're serious about talking about that stuff, they know inside them that there is a place where beauty resides and they would like a little bit more of it, I think, in their in their lives, and are prepared to engage, I think, very readily to explore whether there is a way in which actually beauty can be uh, can play a greater part in the lives that they lead. But I think both in their personal life and in their working life. Yeah, because you really talk about bringing meaning as well into our worlds, into and purpose into both. Our personal worlds, but into business as well, and I'd, we'll co- come to that in a little while. But one of the the great lines you say in the book is, "Objects are gifts from their creators," and that really resonated with me because I felt that we're all born as creators, and then our our our, our family history, our paradigm we're born into, the social socialization all gets in the way and tells us that we're not, and that we have to behave a certain way, and this creator mentality this inherent creation that's in in us all is actually silenced and and it feels like the world is starting to wake up towards it and it's been empowered to do more to create more 
through technology, through mindset shifts, through people like you writing books like this, the world is waking it up. And I'd love if you'd share a little bit about that to our audience. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a very good observation, and I and I agree with you. And a great a great question. You know, I I also say you know I think we've all had enough of ugly, and uh, it doesn't matter you know where you look today and every day you open the newspaper or you turn on the tv screen or you know the radio and there's just stuff that just comes out which you kind of it almost seems mind-bending in terms of the world that we're currently living in you know whether that's socially politically economically there is therefore a general response to the fact that people don't want to live this life anymore and also i think that there is a big millennial shift that's going on. I've interviewed quite a number of people since I wrote the book, and all of them talk about this value shift in the millennial mindset. There's a lady called Fiona Reynolds who wrote a great book called The Fight for Beauty. She was the DG, Director General of the National Trust for many years. She's now a master at Emmanuel College. And I said to her, you know, what gives you hope, Fiona, right at the end of our interview? And she kind of looked at me a bit nonplussed, actually, because she didn't expect that question to come. And she said, well, I wouldn't be here if I, you know, if I was hopeful. And she's older than, than I am. Um, but she said, what really gives me hope is the young people. And they know that they won't have a job for life, that they won't have a pension, um, that they'll probably never be able to afford a house, that they understand that we've left the world in a place not as, as in good shape as, as we found it in. Again, I think that's from an environmental perspective, but also a social perspective and an economic perspective. And so they come with a different value set. And they want a different response to the world, and they are going to make it happen. Therefore, that striving for a world that is more beautiful is one which I think is going to be a conversation and a mindset and a framework and a philosophy that is going to become inherently more common and more pervasive as we kind of progress you know, down the next sort of five years or so, I think. And this is probably why we're seeing millennials or younger people younger generations moving from job to job and people often say oh they're unreliable or they're job hopping i actually see it a different way and i see it as they're actually searching for companies with purpose companies with meaning i absolutely agree with that so there's another gentleman that's become a good friend of mine comrade brits comrade is the ceo of a company called falcon coffees he buys coffee and sells it but his purpose is to ensure that the 15 million to 20 million people that grow the entire world's insatiable thirst for coffee are compensated properly, that they build a resilient supply chain, um, and that he can pull those people out of poverty. So if you think about it, right, I mean, the insanity of, you know, Hipsterville, somewhere where we're paying five pounds for a you know, a shot of coffee, but actually you're not even getting a few cents for it at the bottom or the beginning of the supply chain. So Comrade wants to change that. But what he said to me was, is he said, when people come to interview, he said, actually, I feel I'm the one that's being interviewed. And they look at me in the eye and they say, do you really believe the things that you say? And are you actually going to do the things that you believe in? Because if you don't, as, as you've just said, Aidan, then I'm, I'm going down the road because I'm not working for a salary. I'm working for meaning and I'm working for narrative. And I think the lots of the companies that I've, I've talked to in a whole variety of different sizes, scopes, they're seeing this increasing 
request and desire for their people that, that work for them and with them to say, look, we need meaning in the work that we do. I truly believe one of the biggest blockers to children who have grown up to want to do this, so that so they're looking for meaning in the role, mm. one of the blockers is actually their parents and mm. the parents' paradigm of, oh, well, you go and you work in a company and you stay there and you work there for 10 years or even more. They're actually discouraging the children. And we see this in the States quite a bit where their whole lives are plotted out for them yeah. and they're under so much pressure to perform in colleges. Yeah. And then they get into the system and they go, well, that's it, you have a job for life now, you're a lawyer or you're an accountant, etc." Meanwhile, we have AI and automation coming down the track at, at a rate of knots and that's going to change the world. And actually what is more valuable is this, what you talk about in your book, creativity, creation, beauty and purpose. Yeah, and I've, I've thought about that quite a lot recently, actually. Uh, so I thought, I thought, obviously, I've thought about it a lot for a long time, and um, and I've practiced all of those things. I suppose in a way I've been fortunate to do it, but I, I absolutely think that this this return to you know your observation that we are all all sovereign creatures, we are actually all incredibly unique. I mean, it's one of the most fascinating things of being a human being is, of course, every human being we meet is actually a unique person. Uh, Picasso believed we are all artists, and we all have that capacity to create. Now, you know, it may not be, you know, the the painting that sits in the, uh, you know, the Tate Modern or, you know, whatever, but it's, you know, the incredible meal that you cook for your family, um, you know, as a, as a man or as a woman. You know, there's all sorts of ways in which we can bring our creative gifts to the world. And I think that, in, in some respects, I think that, you know, AI and automation are fantastic. I mean, I think that applied properly, they they can be in service to really helping us as a species. And the reality is, is that, you know, technology never stands still. It is actually fundamentally wedded to us as human beings. It's not separate to. It's a, technology is all social in the way that it is, it's inherently created and used. I'm not saying all of it's good, but there's a purpose behind it. There's a meta purpose behind it. And in some respects, I think that what we're doing is, is we are going on a really interesting journey now in being able to rethink and reinvent what our roles as human beings are in the world. And personally, I think that if that allows us to return to an inherent form of creativity, in whatever form that may be, that has got to be a good thing because it allows us to reconnect to this idea of purpose and meaning and narrative because I think we are meaning-making creatures. That is what we do extraordinarily well. It's why we love stories. It's why we love films. Um, Anything that carries a narrative that allows us to see and understand the world in a different type of way is, I think, quite an extraordinary capacity and capability i think about it now i mean for young people this is a liberation for older people it's a liberation maybe in the fact that you're not on this treadmill from nine till five and that you only get two weeks holiday a year you know if you're in the u.s what you get given is a liberation to actually explore what a different world might might look like that is really exciting my only caveat to that is think about what it is you make why you bring it into the world, how you're going to bring that into the world, what value is it going to have in that you bring to the world. 
Can it be restorative? Can it be regenerative? Can it be joyful? And can it bring some form of happiness? Because uh, I think that is a really important part of the beauty lens and framework and language, which is this idea of a life that is worthwhile and a life that is joyful and deeply so. That's something that I would really want to encourage people to think about. And when I wrote the book, that was a very important part of what I was trying to express. And this is the idea of utopia, isn't it? That it is visible, that you have to actually strive for it. If you don't, you're just on a ghost ship wandering around the seas of life and unhappily. And it doesn't have to be that way. You said something there, Alan, that really struck a chord. We sit in front of mind-numbing TV and... When you really think about it, creation comes from, and you you actually said this, where you feed your mind with multiple sources of information, economics, art, you know, whatever it might be, Mm. that's the data in, and then you let it stew and marinate, and then it comes out as something totally different because it mixes with your unique context of the world. And, And while we're seeing this mass automation or mass technological changes in the world where AI automation, machine learning is getting smarter and smarter, faster and faster. That's getting smarter. But it feels many, many people are dumbing down because they're sitting in front of the TV. They're not reading anymore. Their attention spans are less than ever before because of devices and device usage. And we have this kind of whiplash that's starting to happen in society. Well, I would say that there's a spectrum as to that. I'm as much a victim of, of my iPhone or my smartphone as, as anybody else. And, you know, because, because, it, because, because it has so many applications on it. So if I'm in the car, you know, it's got all my music on it. Uh, or actually I like to listen to podcasts. So I have, you know, I have a podcast aggregator on it. So sometimes I, but actually they're quite long form. I do use it too much sometimes and I do use it to distract myself. But I think that there's another question maybe people ask, which is, is it worth my attention time? I mean, I was just thinking about, you know, a podcast I was listening to the other day. Now it was a two hour conversation and I was driving back from Somerset where I've met a very good, uh, an old friend of mine, uh, called Mark Reddy, who crafts these incredible spoons out of wood. We'd not been in touch for 20 years. I came across him through uh, London Craft Week, and I, I, I got in touch, and I said, you know, Mark, I want to come and see you. I said, you know, uh, it just it would be great to talk. And so I was prepared to drive all the way down to Somerset and all the way back to spend a couple of hours with him because the analog bit was really important. But in the meantime, I had, you know, uh, four hours, well, four hours actually of um, the drive was longer than that, but of listening to some really engaging conversation. And so I think that there is, I mean, I mean definitely, I mean, I look at, you know, I look at TV and thank God for, uh, you know, all of the other stuff that aggregates terrestrial television because there would be nothing left almost actually, to be honest with you. Um, that's my, my humble opinion. But also I think we see other things which I think are interesting back to our early point about reclaiming beauty, the rise of festivals, all sorts of festivals where people want to be together, which is the fundamental human need to transcend. A festival you know, is a fundamental part of what makes us human beings, the, the ability to come together. And that's a response to, I think, a world where we want to reconnect to who we are and how we are as human beings to, you know, have what I would call the full analog experience. So whether you're in a rave tent 
waiting for the drop, you know, whether it's a literary festival like the Hay Festival, there's a desire for human beings to kind of reconnect. So in a way, I think that, you know, I see great optimism and hope in people wanting to come together, share knowledge, ideas, experiences, words, music, pictures, you know, in fact, all the creative stuff, festivals are really all about creativity. So we may not find it, you know, on on the TV, and there is nothing wrong with watching a, a Sunday film on a Sunday afternoon or even a Friday. I think there's greater source for hope and optimism than maybe what is maybe we see on the surface is kind of how I see. So drawing back the lens or perspective a little bit, I think is quite exciting. And that is why I love this book and why I think it needs to be echoed, this book, and needs to be shared because there isn't enough content like this. I find there's an increasingly amount of stuff around happiness and mindfulness and etc., which is a great start. But this is about beauty and beauty in everything that we do. And, and not that you need to be an artist to create beauty, that you can bring it into your life in some way. And, you know, you were talking about millennials or the younger generations and, and their almost transformation that we're seeing in humanity. And it resonated with the chapter that, that you write about Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut, and, and the over, overview effect, because it's almost like a transformation humanity is going through. I'd love if you shared that with us. Absolutely. I, I, when I came across that, I just found it an incredible moment. Now, I've been lucky, I think, to have one existential transformative moment in my life that w- that was unexpected. And so in a sense, because of that, when I, when I listened to what Edgar had to say, I can understand what that felt like. And so he says that he's up in a spaceship. He was, a, he was an astronaut. And his job was to fly the men to the moon and then fly them home again. That was his job. So he spent a lot of time in the spaceship. And then he says, you know, I'm in this ship. My job is done. And I'm just looking out the window and the spaceship's rotating. And there I see, hanging in the void, the sun, the moon, and the earth. He said, and at that moment, I had this incredible experience that flows through my body. He says, and I realized that the molecules in my body, the molecules in my spacesuit, the molecules in my astronauts' bodies, the molecules that make up this spaceship are all the same. We have all been formatted in an ancient star. And I just like totally blew me away and I totally got it in that moment where, where the beauty is is absolutely incredible and he talks about this this description where he says you see things with your eyes but you experience them with your body that's kind of really where i wanted to start emerson the uh, a very famous american philosopher and poet said beauty gets us out of surfaces and into the foundations of things and in a way, he's paraphrasing what Edgar, you know, so incredibly described in terms of this profound understanding that we are unified um, at a molecular level. That's a joyful insight and an exciting idea that actually we are part of a much, much bigger living organism. 
It's one that comes from Eastern philosophy for a long time as well. Like we see this in Eastern philosophy that that was burgeoning to the fore in maybe the 70s. People like Alan Watts talked about this a lot and tried to bring it into Western culture, but it seemed to have been quelled during the kind of Wall Street greed is good growth spurt that came into economies. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of things that have gone on. I mean, you know, this is, there's always a weave. You know, it's never, it's neither either... You know, there's a weave that goes on, and I think that the the rational, the idea of rationalism, that science, in terms of you know knowing everything, and where mysticism was kind of left out of the equation uh, because it couldn't be measured. You know, there's a, there's a great saying. You know, when I worked in advertising many many years ago, was is what gets measured gets made. If you can't measure it, you can't make it. Uh, but of course, human beings aren't aren't that. And and I was thinking about this idea that actually there is mystery in us as human beings, and there's a knowingness. It's so back to that idea, as I said. You know, if I go up to someone and I ask them about beauty, what does beauty mean to you? And they know that I really mean that as a question. They will really look inside themselves to find an answer which touches on their beauty. There's a, there's a part of us, no matter what happens to us in, in, in our lives, where I think we hold a small space of that untouchable beauty in, it, in each and every one of us. And in a sense, the skill, the ability is to be able to, you know, share that with the world, um, give it to other people, um, uh, and not be, uh, I think, um, subsumed by this idea that, you know, money is everything, ownership of everything is is more important than, I don't know, just going outside and looking at, looking at an amazing moon, you know, or an amazing, an amazing sun or an amazing blue sky or, you know, whatever. We all see nature as inherently beautiful. We understand that. Because in it, that we know it, there's truth. It's back to that idea of truth and beauty. Nature holds both those things and we understand it. Back to your point about it can't be measured. It brought to mind as well. I also worked in advertising. And one of my favorite sayings, I was the gainsayer, although the gainsayer often gets demonized as the naysayer. And I used to always say, not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts, the Einstein quote, because it's probably led to this GDPR and this data crisis that everybody's collecting data on everything, but nobody stopped to ask why. It really resonated that it's one of the challenges we have with stuff that cannot be quantified, like even innovation or changing mindsets or transformation. It's very difficult for innovation or change makers and companies innovation workers and companies to measure their effect on the company because it's so gradual and it's a ripple and not a splash and therefore it often gets overlooked yeah and of course in a way you know the whole idea of innovation inside organizations is an oxymoron just to be a little bit provocative the creative approach and this is one of the things i it took me a long time in my life to work out and i wish i knew it at the beginning which is you ask, you know, a really creatively, you know, driven person to solve a problem. What they do is, is they really think about the outcome. They think about what is the best outcome I could create. And it may well be that there are some challenges along the way in terms of uh, that bit of the pathway is not clear. There's a bit of engineering that needs to be done. 
that currently doesn't exist. These are all things that are seen as inherently risky by others. But for that individual, these are things that are just what I would call they're the grunt because the, the outcome, the prize, is so clearly the best thing that you could achieve. All of the other pain is, is, is worthwhile. Then what you have is is actually, and I've you know this is sort of, well, I've worked with so many companies is what you've got is inside an organisation is they're not starting from that place they're starting from a very different place and there's all all these gates around risk mitigation and of course the reality is is that you know back to the you know the utopian thing and and obviously we caveat that which is the work can be incredibly grounded because ultimately you want a good outcome your team wants a good outcome but. Um, what you're not faced with is in people getting more and more scared about the risk that's being created. And in the end, as I once said to somebody is, you know what, the greatest risk you take is you take no risk at all. And it's just, I think it's as simple as, you know, you learn to ride a bike. There comes a point where, you know, you take your, you know, you stabilizers off the back and there's got to be a point where you fall over and break, you know, cut your knees. Jackson Pollock, Picasso, you know, Michelangelo, Grayson Perry, you know, anybody that you can think of as an artist that we revere today, there will be stacks and stacks of stuff in their studios that you will never show the world because that was their practice. It was their practice that allowed them to achieve the excellence in their vision and their perfection of their mastery of materials, their ability to tell the stories that he wanted to tell in a way that would seduce and inspire, shock, or, you know, their audiences around the world. And that fundamentally, for me, is the practice of creativity. And that is why, in a sense, it's so challenging for big organisations, I think, to want to go on that journey. But on the other hand, I sort of think, if you design in that process of failure, and that failure is not a moral failure or anything else, that has got to be part of the process of innovation. Yeah, I love that, man. It's something you said there about almost starting with the end in mind and that the innovation worker, the change maker, the maverick within the company naturally does that because they can see the outcome and then they don't think about the rocky road to get there because it's going to deviate it everywhere. And it reminded me of what you talked about in the book about the Bill Bailey principle. Yeah, there's a point in my life actually where, you know, I wasn't in a great place. So actually, I took all the music out of the car and I just filled it with comedy CDs. And then wherever I drove, I just listened to, you know, comedians. And uh, so I listened to a lot of Bill Bailey. And, uh, you know, Bill says, um, people come up to me and they say, Bill, hey, you know, how do you come up with your jokes? He said, well, I start with a laugh and I work backwards. You know, what do I need to do to get that amount of laughter? And I just thought it was a real ha-ha moment for me, uh, which was, that's right. Uh, there's a there's a artist called Ellie Luna, and she says, you know, I dream my paintings and I paint my dream. And I think that that's also the idea of of the creative aspect of envisioning something. You could almost say, I don't know Steve Jobs is, you know, I, I remember watching the film about him where he said one day, you know, people will be buying twenty thousand units uh, of computers a week, and people looked at him as though he was on another planet. But he held that that vision in his mind, you know, and you if you want to bring change into the world, you have to hold something really clearly as a as a as a place, as a destination, as a principle, 
um, which I think is very, very important. Um, you know, it may be the coastal utopia. It may be that you don't get there. But my God, you know, that, you know, back to that, you know, the, the Vaclav Havel idea, which is, you know, hope is this really important kind of part of who we are. It's, it's, it describes our interior landscape, not what the exterior landscape is, where we put unlimited resources into a limited outcome. Um, it, you know, that, so that could be a business. It could be, I don't know, uh, a, new, a new lyric, a song. You know, whatever it is. I mean, I remember uh, Leonard Cohen, the song Hallelujah. He spent 15 years writing that lyric until he was happy that he had got out of that song. That, yeah, he got out of the song what he really wanted to say. So, so I think that's, an, that's another important aspect of this, which is kind of relates to time. You know, this idea that. Um, you know, Zuckerberg saying, well, you know, move fast and break things. And there was a lady whose name escapes me, unfortunately, and she wrote a great post on Medium and she said, you don't move fast and break things, you move slow and you build stuff. I love that. And I thought, what a great insight. Because, of course, in a sense, you know, the practice of, say, craftsmanship, making, if you're really cool with how you're working say with a material and let's say you can't put that material back you know whether you're carving marble or whether you're making something out of wood you're carving letters into stone you know there is no there's no control z right you know this is it this is the commitment and so it changes the mindset i think in terms of what it is that you're making it makes you consider much more deeply the purpose and the energy of what it is that you're making. You talk about Granfors Brook. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> Granfors yeah, Brook. Okay, man. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, what you said. So that, that thing you said, <laughs> the company that makes axes, that is exactly what you're talking about because the owner there put in this idea of purpose and there everybody worked towards a purpose and it transformed the business. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, I got... I was actually giving a talk at the uh, at the Do Lectures in 2009, and um, Gabriel Brambury, who was the CEO of Grand Force Brooks, was speaking the same day I was there. So, as a speaker, I had the benefit of actually listening to a whole bunch of other people talk, which was amazing. Um, and yeah, so he bought the company, and when he opened up the you know the accountancy ledger, it was quite clear he bought bought a busted flush. Uh, and the business was going to go bust, and he realised that there was all sorts of things going wrong. Um, his company made axes, and uh, his uh, forgers, um, the people that made the axe heads, um, put them together, were paid by the piece. Well, you know, if you're making something and you're being paid by the piece, what are you going to do? You work as quickly as you can. And he said, we have to change this, and we have to change the whole principle. Um, and what we're going to do is, is we're going to research the types of axes we should be making. So he put together a collection of 2,000 axes. He talked to people all over the Nordics in terms of their practice and use of axes in, you know, working day, everyday life. So came up with a design model of the number of axes he needed to make. And then he says to his, 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 his axe makers, his forgers, so this is how it's going to work. You work onto your axe head until you are satisfied that is the best work you can make. And then and only then do you do two things. 
you put the stamp of Granfors Brook into the head of the axe, and then you put your initials next to it, and you stamp that in as well. And we will say that this axe is guaranteed for the rest of your life, or it's a 25-year lifetime guarantee. And I can tell you, having used a few axes in my life, that you know, 25 years is a long time if you're using an axe on a regular basis. But I think it's a really interesting, again, a way of 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 redesigning a business. Okay, the world needs axes. Um, people use axes. And I use the axe in a sense because it's such a primary instrument. Um, you know, it takes us right back, you know, to uh, the early part of our development, you know, as, as a species and relationship with technology and tools. And that's the reason why I used it. But the lessons we can pull off of it, you could apply to any business, you know, give your workforce a reason to come to work. And I was talking to um, another company recently, and he said, do you know what? People don't come here for a paycheck. They come here to work on a project. And I thought, what a great way. You wake up on a Monday morning and work all week on a project. What a, what a great idea. Um, and so the, the story of Granfors Brook is important, I think, for any business, any CEO, uh, HR department, you know, you name it, to think about if you're going to design something that is really going to be enduring and it's going to bring value to the world, then you need to think, you know, you can design every aspect of that business and that process, which is why I think there are a whole bunch of companies out there at the moment um, which I think are ugly businesses because of the way that they operate and the way that they make their money. And I actually think in today's world that if you are only in business just to make money at any cost, then quite frankly, you're in the wrong business. And, and Alan, you know, I was thinking there when you're talking about the axe and how the worker has a meaning every day, but it also changes how they do it. And you talk about the great Tibetan calligrapher, Tashi Manox, and it's that pouring of emotion into the task that really gets a different output. If you type in Anthony's meatballs into Google, you'll get this recipe for meatballs in the States and the, the recipe must be followed to the letter. And the letter is, you must play this music in the background. <laughs> you must be thinking about this. You must use this type of brand, etc. And it, it's actually about this. It's about how you do it has a, has a dramatic effect on the output and how it tastes and how it looks, etc., etc. And it'd be great to share your insight that you give us about the Tibetan calligrapher. Well, yeah, so, um, you know, Tashi uh, is an incredible human being. Spent 22 years working in a Tibetan monastery perfecting this art of Tibetan calligraphy. He actually, you know, was dyslexic when he joined and then he managed to learn, you know, three incredible languages, uh, immensely complex. But, yeah, he talks about this idea of the stillness of the soul and that uh, it's only when the soul is really still that actually, you know, he, he can produce the work of a quality and a consistency that is very necessary for the work that he did. So he could be working on a hand-inscribed, painted manuscript because obviously these things would wear out and they didn't print them. They were all done by hand and it was a thousand years of lineage. 
And he realized that if he did carry any emotion in his body, good or bad, as he wrote or painted the letters in this text, that emotion would travel through his body, down his arm, into his wrist, into his hand, into the pen, onto the brush, and there it would last forever. And it's really interesting because I, I still do a lot of handwriting, and I started off as a, as a typographer, so I can remember hand-lettering things. And, you know, there's not a day, I mean, actually this morning I did a lot of letter-writing by hand, and I could really feel I'm very conscious of all the emotion that I'm carrying in my body as I'm sort of doing these, these, these manual tasks. And so I think Tash's contribution to the practice of work and living is, in, in fact, very, very important. And, maybe, you know, dare I say, critical in many respects. I think that, you know, he's taught me that you have to give time and space to slow down. Uh, we spent a weekend where he was teaching a group of us just to paint an enzo. Now, an enzo is, a, is actually a Japanese Zen practice of you take a brush, dip it in ink, and you make a circle on a piece of paper in one movement. And the objective is to make a complete and perfect inner circle. And, of course, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, but in that practice, what he taught us was is this idea of perfection and imperfection to judge and to actually not judge the work. If you really bring great stillness into the work that you do, there is an in you tap into a deeper level of creativity and intuition, which isn't there if you're just burning, you know, up in your in your brain. And I think that this links into the the work of a craftsman and a creative person to kind of give space to allow things to come in a in a good way and not to and not to fight it you know and that, that time is this this thing and you know we do it all the time i mean you know we're trying to multitask all the time and actually do you know what the best thing is to do one thing beautifully well um and then it's done and it's far more elegant you know whatever that is to really give attention to something then pretend that actually, you know, you've now got to, you know, give your next 10 seconds up to five things because reality is, is, you know, what are you really going to achieve with that? Well, Alan, you've certainly done that with this book. And I have to say, I really, really highly recommend it. It's do design why beauty is the key to everything. And Alan, where can people find out more about you? Because you do a lot of consulting for businesses. You do a lot of senior leadership mind change and mind shift development etc where can people find out more well you just go to beautiful.business so www.beautiful.business that's all you need to do or you can contact me at alan at beautiful.business i'll be very happy to talk to anyone that would be interested in you know how beauty can help them see the world in a better way basically well alan moore the man who lives off the coast of utopia thanks for joining us <laughs> Thank you very much, Aidan.